Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. This episode is the second in a series examining a women's crisis pregnancy center and the people both involved and affected by the facility. Located in the small town of Madisonville, Kentucky, the organization is called Door of Hope. Our guest today, Ms. Tanya Bowman, started off as a volunteer for the center before, unexpectedly, being helped out by them in a life-altering way. We begin our talk with Ms. Bowman by learning about the event in her life that would set her down the path she remains on today, all going back to when she was 16 years old. I had grown up in an abusive household. My dad was murdered when I was seven years old, which was really detrimental to me, and um He and my mom weren't married, and so she didn't allow me to go to his funeral. I didn't have any closure there, and so, and I suffered from abuse at home from my mom, who who is now we have a great relationship now. But I suffered from abuse, and um, and so my goal as a kid pretty much was I look for love, and so I started hearing about sex when I was in middle school. But of course, I didn't get it from a a responsible adult. I heard it from my peers who. Don't tell you the consequences. And so in my young mind, I heard that sex equal love. And so I made the choice to become sexually active at a pretty young age. And then when I was 14, my family moved away to Orangeboro and I continued to be sexually active. And then one day when I was 16, I got up and got ready to go to school and I was really sick and again, very immature and didn't even realize that it was a possibility that I could be pregnant, that I was, you know, reaping the consequences of these choices that I was making. And so long story short, found out that I was pregnant and uh, my mom told me that uh, I had to go to Louisville and have an abortion. And I really didn't want to have an abortion, even though I didn't know what in the world I would do with a baby or how I would provide for a, a child. But again, in my young mind, I was thinking this was my answer to love. But nevertheless, she and my aunt took me to Louisville to an abortion clinic. And uh, I'm 52 years old now and I'm 16 then, but the experience was so traumatic. I still remember every detail of it. I could even tell you what I was wearing that day. And uh, I remember walking into the clinic. <laughs> I remember walking into the clinic and all the protesters were on the outside, the pro-life protesters, which I didn't understand any of that, you know, begging me not to go in or to do it. And So they actually spoke with you? Oh, they were just yelling, and but they pretty much subdued them. They, you know, they couldn't get to you or, you know, walk up to you, but they were standing back and, you know, they had a picket signs or, you know, signs saying don't do it, you know, there's abortion is murder, that kind of thing. And really, I didn't understand any of that, and I didn't understand fetal development, but I cried the whole day. I just cried uncontrollably. But I remember them giving me a counseling session, which I later found out is mandatory at an abortion clinic. They say they counsel you, but actually they didn't. They just told me, you're doing the right thing. We're going to take care of you. And then I remember going to the back of the clinic and still crying. And 
But shortly before that, a nurse, which is, from what I understand, is pretty unusual at an abortion clinic. She saw me crying uh, nonstop, and she came over to me, and she told me, she said, uh, I can tell you don't want to do this. She said, uh, I can let you in on a secret. She said, nobody can force you to do this, even if you are underage. She said, the law can't make you. She said, or your parents can't make you. And I didn't know that. But my mom was with me, and I didn't have anywhere to go. So, Mm -hmm. of course, I stayed. And then the doctor came in, and I remember asking him if it was going to hurt. And, of course, I was talking about physical pain he said no he said the procedure won't take but a couple of minutes he said we'll put you to sleep he said after that you may have a couple of cramps but you can go back to school a couple of days he said be just like it never happened and uh remember him putting me to sleep and I woke up in a room full of women we were all laying on these cots and we all had just came out of the same procedure and everybody was crying you know even some of the women who chose to come that day but it's like almost like instant regret on their faces. But that's a decision you can't go back and undo. And, you know, it was so strange that everybody in the medical field told me that it's not a real baby, it's just a blob of tissue. And my mom worked in the medical field. It's just a blob of tissue, no big deal. But at 16 years old, not being pro-life, pro-choice, wasn't even a Christian at the time. I knew something on the inside of me knew that that was a real baby, a real life that I had taken. What about the father? Did you let him know about what was going on? No, not until afterwards. Okay. What did he say? No big deal. Okay. Not not at all. It was no big deal. I assume it didn't work out? Like he didn't no, find love? No. No. <laughs> no. Okay. No, not at all. I didn't even love myself at the time, wow. so. Who will speak up for the little ones? Helpless and half abandoned. They've got a right to choose life They don't want to lose I've got to speak up, won't you? Did it haunt you daily? or It did. You know, the mistake was, number one, making the choice to become sexually active outside of marriage. That was the mistake. Well, as far as the baby, yeah, that was like instant torment. I was already pretty depressed person, like Mm -hmm. from childhood, since the... Day my dad was killed. I, I suffered from so, depression. I was seven then. So it just added to it. It just added to yeah. it. Guilt now on top of the depression. And yeah, I thought about the baby all the time. Let's go back to what you're talking about uh, sexually active. You know, we hear a lot about all this federal funding for uh, sex education that's supposed to make everybody well aware of what happens when you have sex. You, mm-hmm. Did it not get to your school or, or just did not work? Or We didn't have it. I don't remember having it uh-huh. uh, back then. I remember having health classes mm-hmm. and they taught you about uh, contraceptives and those types of things. So they did teach it. Yeah, yeah contraceptives, uh-huh. but I mean, I never, I was very young, very immature. And right. even today, although that information is out there, Young people still every day make the choice not to use contraceptives. They hear the consequences. You know, when I go into the school system, I tell them my personal story in depth, and Mm -hmm. I take other people to tell them their personal stories about, you know, alcohol and sex and different. But they still, some of them, not all, still make the decisions to. One thing I found out in life is people are driven by one thing or another. My choice is... And it's not to make excuses for any mm-hmm. because I take responsibility, full responsibility. But I was pretty much driven by pain. Okay. And I made bad choices out of pain. Did you continue to be active? Or to After that, yes. And yeah. I ended up getting married just on a whim. Mm-hmm. And I had three more children. Uh, but the three that I have, even though I love them dearly, uh, they didn't replace that one. 
So the other one was still yes. haunting, mm-hmm. haunting you. Okay. Yes, sir. How did you raise your children? I mean, obviously you knew the consequences of, mm-hmm. of uh, sex by then. Uh, did you talk to him about that? Or? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> my children were very small when I became a Christian, and which ha- is how my life turned around. Well, let's talk about that then. How okay. that, how'd that go down? Well, led a pretty wild life from 16 to 26 years old. Getting involved, drinking some, all that still trying to cover pain and uh, fill voids. And uh, drug use uh, was heavily hooked on drugs, on crack cocaine at one point in my life. Oh my goodness, wow. And uh, Here in Madisonville, huh? Well, here, and then I ended up, my husband at the time joined the Navy, so Mm. we lived in California for a while, but I did it there. Mm. And... uh, Mostly there in California. Then I came back to Kentucky. I was just a miserable person. I mean, I had a lot of undealt with stuff. Uh I heard a preacher say this one time, which probably was the most profound statement I've ever heard in my life. He said, if you don't deal with your stuff, your stuff will deal with you. Mm -hmm. And that is so true. I never got counseling. And I just stuffed all this stuff in. And so uh, when I was 26, I moved back here and was just pretty much at the end of myself. <laughs> you know, something has to change. I had these little... Were you divorced children. by then? Or? No, I was still married at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up going to church one Sunday. And I'll never forget, I went to church that Sunday. Chose to go. Nobody could believe it. I mean, people knew me, you know. I was pretty wild. And uh, I sat on the back row and uh, heard an awesome message that day I never heard before in my life. And heard scriptures quoted. I never heard like Jeremiah 29 and 11. Which for is, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and their plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and plans to give you a hope and a future. And that just dealt with me, and I went to the altar and surrendered my life to Christ. And from that point on, I mean, uh-huh. it was just a complete turnaround. What did your uh, husband think of this? I guess you tried to tell him about it. Oh, yeah. Then he eventually came along, but he didn't last long. <laughs> yeah, <it> didn't <laughs> he eventually came along, no, but yeah. and we went to different directions and there was a lot of infidelity and I was really focusing on God and my children and so I eventually made the decision to get a divorce. You can have my heart if you don't mind broken Eventually, you would run into Door of Hope. How did that happen? That happened one Sunday. I hadn't been saved maybe a couple of years. And that was still a secret that I was keeping was the abortion. Now, I told most of my other stuff, you know, because instantly my pastor put me over the outreach because... I found Jesus. I want everybody to know him. Yes. I just It just blew my mind how good he was and that he loved me all that time. And so I was out in the streets and you got to come to church with me. Uh-huh. I mean, dragging people to church. and But I still kept the secret of the abortion. It was just so much shame to it. And I felt like it was the unforgivable sin. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if people know I did that, what are they going to think about me? One Sunday, I invited a group of people to church and I couldn't wait for them to hear my pastor speak. But that Sunday, he got up and he said, we were going to have a special guest speaker from the Door of Hope. I had never heard of the Door of Hope. And it was Gwen Kick, the founder of the Door of Hope. And Gwen got up and I tear up. But she shared her story of her baby, uh, baby Hope. And uh, of course it was miscarriage, not miscarriage actually, uh, 
early infant death. She died from the trisomy 18 syndrome. So I listened to her story, and then at the end of it, she started talking about the services Door of Hope offered, and she talked about abortion and all these different things. I was so uncomfortable, and I was actually getting mad, you know, and I'm uh-huh. sitting on the very front row of the church, and I even thought about getting up and walking out, but I thought if I walk out, the people don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, so I just sat there through it, yeah. and then eventually God dealt with me, and I went out there, and I told him, I said, well, I just want to be a volunteer out here. Still never told them. And they said, okay, well, there's a volunteer training you have to go through. And so I sat down in the training the very first day. They talked about abortion. They actually talked about the abortion procedures, how they are performed. And I just broke down. And I finally told one of the women, Martha Stevenson, that I had had an abortion. And she was so, I mean, they were so non-judgmental and just so compassionate. And uh, so she suggested that I go through a Bible study called Forgiven and Set Free. And I signed up for that. And I did. And uh, it was just the most phenomenal thing and, you know, dealt with it. And uh, I remember the next to the last night, we had homework assignments every night. And they said, your homework assignment tonight is to go home and pray and ask God to show you if your baby was a boy or girl. And also to name your baby because on the last day we were going to have a memorial service. And I'm still pretty young in Christ thinking this is a little bit weird. <laughs> but I remember leaving and praying in my car and asking God to show me if my baby was a boy or girl. Mm-hmm. And I never said it. I, but I did tell him this specifically. I said, I need you to do something really unique because I don't want to guess, try to guess. I need you to, I need to know that it's you. Mm-hmm. And so that same week, I'm forgetting all about the prayer. I remember getting a call from one of my uh, friends. She was in labor and she was by herself. And she said, can you please come up here and be my support person? I said, sure. Mm -hmm. So I went up there and sat in the delivery room with her for hours. And finally, she delivered her baby. And I looked down, and there was a baby girl. And I looked at her, and it just hit me right there in that delivery room that that was God's way of showing me that I had a daughter. What was her name? Chelsea. Ended up naming her Chelsea. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a memorial service, and uh, we had to write her a letter. And then we read it at the memorial service. It was the neatest thing ever. I finally felt closure. Then I started sharing it. And, uh, you know, what was amazing to me is my pastor, he's very pro-life and he he loves Door of Hope. And he said, uh, he asked me to share that at church one January during Sanctity of Human Life Month. And I I didn't want to again, but I did. And um, he made an altar call after that because I'm thinking I'm the only person in this church The altar was full of people, even older women who had carried this sacred for years. And I thought, wow, you know, it's just amazing. And so the more I shared it, the easier it got, the freer I got. I touched my belly overwhelmed by what I had been chosen to perform. But then an angel came one day, told me to kneel down and pray. For unto me a man child would be born. In the the world, we'll mm-hmm. say, you know, there's obviously the mainstream like political culture and media culture is pro-choice. I've heard some say that like the guilt that people feel is not natural. That that's that's built in there by Christians or you know religious conventions. What what, what say you? Okay, I say that's not true at all. Number one, I wasn't really nobody was guilting me, or and the other end of the spectrum, nobody was saying you did the right thing. It's it's what I felt in my heart. I believed. I actually believed the people in the medical field because that's how naive I was. That it's just a blob of tissue. I tell people all the time. I can't explain it. 
But the second I woke up, I knew something on the inside of me. So it wasn't that people were trying to make me feel guilty. I just knew that it was wrong, and I knew, you know. I'm sorry I got off the track. So no. Door of Hope, yeah. I, I often get in the weeds. but okay, That's fine. Pull me back in. Okay, so Door of Hope. I started working there, and uh, they created a job for me. So oh, I was wow. assistant, assistant. You know, at first I volunteered, then they created a job for me. And then the communications director uh, was pregnant, so she was going to resign her position to be a stay-at-home mom. And so the director said, do you want that job? And I didn't even know what it entailed. And I said, sure. And uh, so it involved a lot of marketing and going out, doing a lot of public speaking, which I'd never done before in my life. Then they said, well, you know, you also have to teach abstinence education. So I, I think that is awesome how God brings things around full circle, you know, not just dealing with that, but to give me a job teaching abstinence education when I definitely was not. But, you know, right. I knew the consequences at that point. And so... I would say, yeah, I, I can see how someone who has been through it and knows all the mistakes mm-hmm. can say, hey, man, I'm here to tell you, mm-hmm. it's not what it seems. But the opposition would say, you're a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. How can you stand there right. and tell people? So what, what do you say to that? Well, actually, now I'm chaplain of the jail. And, you know, I, I tell the girls all the time, I go in there and probably 95% of the inmates, the female inmates at the jail out here, are there for drug-related charges, either for theft to get drugs or doing drugs or selling drugs, whatever. But I can tell them all day long, you can be delivered. You know, they struggle with this addiction. You can be delivered. You know, look at me. And then I'll bring somebody in who's never been in trouble, don't even have a speeding ticket. Mm -hmm. But who do you think they believe? They believe me Uh because I've been there and done that, and they see my life now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, God wants to use broken people. So many people have in their mind, I've done too much for God to use me, or how can I tell people, you're the exact one that can tell somebody if you've been freed from it, if you've been delivered from it. Now, you're very upfront about your past problems. A lot of times there's people out there that, that aren't honest, but they're still mm-hmm. preaching the same message. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, my biggest thing is uh, that... And I hope I clarified myself. Like, yeah, they they yeah. pretend to be, or I say, they pretend. Yeah, but they they seem to be squeaky clean. But then come to find out, they got a ton of skeletons. Yeah, you, you can tell they're doing the right thing, but maybe not in the right manner. What, what would you right. say? Well, one of my biggest thing is to be totally transparent in my life. Number for several reasons. Number one is because God can just use that. God can use honesty. He can use transparency. I feel like the enemy, I don't know how deep you want to go spiritual. He operates in secrecy. You know, when you mm-hmm. we carry secrets and I mean it's hard for me to get up and tell somebody and not be honest with him and because people like the girls in the jail They'll say, well, if you come in here and act like you've never done anything, I can never obtain that. I mean, I can never be perfect like you, so what's my mm-hmm. hope in it? But when people know that you've been there and done that, and plus, I wanted to share my life because I don't want the devil to have anything on me, to come back and pull right. strings on me. You know, as soon yeah. as you get out there and then he's whispering in your ear, no, remember you did this and remember. So that's why I expose. I open it up. I open up the curtains. Y'all look in here because in the final analysis, God gets all the glory anyway. And so I tell one of my, the girls that I work with at the courthouse that I did, I said, uh, uh, you know how to get rid of a blackmailer? She said, how's that? I said, tell on yourself. Yeah, and, you know, and that's kind of like what the devil does. He kind of blackmails you right. with your past. It's, yeah, it's paralyzing. Yeah. 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 And that's uh, why one uh, reason when I went into this campaign, a lot of people said, well, I don't want I can't get run for office. People find out this and that. Well, nobody could use anything on me because it's, it's out there. Nothing's going to come out of the woodwork. I told it myself. Yeah, 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 I told it myself. You told me everything, everything you
personal stories of like girls you were able to help or guys I feel like there were several girls that I canceled because in, in, when I worked at Door of Hope they came in for material things like diapers or those type of things but they got a little counseling session first so I shared my story so many times with them and there were several girls that came in who were on the verge of having an abortion and you know the director or somebody else at the center would say Tanya you need to talk to them and so when I would tell them my story and the reality of you know it's not something that you just do it one day and it's all over it and I feel like you know, several girls chose life because of that. And even in the school system, going in and talking, like on the teen pregnancy day, we were going to the school system. At, we normally go for eight days, but we kind of cut it down to five. But on the teen pregnancy day, uh, I would always tell my story. I mean, in depth, I actually would read the letter that I wrote to my daughter, oh, wow. you know, in the class. And so as far as that, I cannot tell you how many girls have come to me. And it's sad that how many high schoolers have already had abortions. Mm -hmm. And it's sad how many are uh, sexually active. And, you know, when we talk about STDs, I remember one girl in particular at a... Grayson County High School and we went in there and I had a whole team of educators and they didn't want to hear the abstinence message they said their exact words were we have sex up here it's just what we do nothing, <laughs> no, nothing else to do here and uh, so I said I okay I, laugh, but, uh, I said well that's fine you know but uh, you know they they've asked me to come for eight days I'm gonna be here y'all give me a shot they said okay and so we go in there and kind of pretty much we kind of win them over you know so we go through the class and we talk about uh STDs and different things. I'll never forget after we left there, we were sitting in my office getting ready to go to Christmas break. One of the girls called me from there crying her eyes out. She had noticed she had some warts down in her mm -hmm. secret no-no place. <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, honey, I said, you know, we told you that, you know, about HPV. I said, it could be. I said, but maybe it's not. Maybe you just have a rat. We talked her into going to the doctor she told her aunt not her mother she went sure enough she had the human papillomavirus okay. non-curable uh, sexually transmitted disease wow. you know how old was she she was in high school so she was like a junior Man. at that time but non-curable and so we just loved our students I remember going up there to meet with her and they brought her into the cafeteria me and a couple of the abstinence team members talked to her and she ended up having surgery to remove the warts, but there was no guarantee that they weren't going to come back. And mm -hmm. just there's, it's just a sad situation. But I feel like that my story, glory to God, has reached a lot of people. So. Explain what you do now. You, you have your own program. I do. Door of Hope, after I started as the communications director, the abstinence program, we were just in one school. This is a little private school. Mm -hmm. And so the abstinence message wasn't really popular. I would go to the different schools and say, I'd like to come in with abstinence. They said, no, we have the health department come in. That's all we need, blah, blah, this and that. You now you said private school? Yeah, we were in a private school teaching okay. abstinence. It's the only school that was let us in. And so... 
I ended up going, the board sent me to, I was so gung-ho about it, the board sent me to Houston, Texas to an abstinence conference. And it was there I obtained a curriculum called Choosing the Best. And on one of the segments of that curriculum, they talked about HIV in particular. And they had a young girl there that was teaching high schoolers about HIV. She took them to the home of a woman who was HIV. Well, she had full-blown AIDS. And she Mm -hmm. shared her story with them. And all this is on this video. And then at the end of the segment, they did a little fake HIV test. And all of them, of course, were negative. They read, but they were like sweating at this point, knowing (laughs) that. But they were all negative. But the young girl that was teaching them, revealed to them that she was HIV positive. She was 16 years old. Oh, and wow. so they were just devastated. And they were, and a couple of them were crying on the video. It was very emotional. So I took that to one school here in a site-based council meeting. And they said, we want this program in our school. Mm-hmm. And then the other school across town heard about it. And they said, well, we want it over here too. Oh, that's cool. And so I started going there. Then I, then I was invited to speak at a district teachers meeting. And I did. And then... Uh, then they invited me to a regional teachers meeting to speak, and I did. Then I was invited to Louisville to a state teachers meeting, and I did. And we were getting calls wow. all over so Kentucky to come. Yes, it was just so wild. And so one of the board members said, let's write a grant. And we did. We wrote a grant for a million dollars. We kind of did it haphazardly. And yeah. like, okay, yeah, right. And we sent it off to Washington. And about a week before we heard about that, Senator, there was a man named Senator Bunny. I had never heard of him, uh-huh. but he had heard about the Door of Hope abstinence program. Wow. I think his granddaughter may have been, I may not be telling that right, but so he came to Door of Hope and he had all this money left over after his campaign uh-huh. and he gave us $100,000 earmarked for abstinence education only. And we were just blown away. About a week later, I was sitting in my office and I got a call from a pregnancy care center way You're off You're supposed somewhere. to say a week later, I was sitting in Hawaii. <laughs> I got a call. (laughs) Well, she called me and she was congratulating me on the money. And I was telling her, thank you. And the more we got into the conversation, I was thinking it was the Mm $100,000. She was talking about that federal grant money. And she said, you all were awarded a million dollars. And I said, no, that's not true. And she said, yeah. And she said, are you at your desk? And I said, yeah. She said, well, pull up this website. And it had the awardees. In the United States, they only awarded 20 organizations and there we were door of hope madisonville a million dollars wow and it was three years uh you had to spin it up in three years and we did Mm -hmm. and then we reapplied but at that time there was a changing of the guards in the white house Mm -hmm. and he cut out all that abstinence money so that was under the bush years that you got the Mm -hmm. okay so mr obama was not a fan well okay well let's talk about politics do you mind no not at all you know, there was a time that both parties had both elements. You know, mm-hmm. they have a pro-choice and a pro-life element. Mm-hmm. And I know nationally, the DNC has, I think, as far as I understand, they've cut funding from anybody mm-hmm. getting money from them that's pro-life. But I know there's been some buckback a little bit, like the, what few are left. Well, I just gotten a text not too long ago from the chairman of our board, Robert mm-hmm. Clemens, where I think they're going to mandate abstinence education in the schools now. Okay. So there will be funding available to that. But it's so funny. I was talking to a gentleman this morning. This is a man when I was campaigning. Mm-hmm. He came out of the blue from somewhere, 80-year-old man mm-hmm. <laughs> helping me campaign. I mean, uh-huh. Gosh, he was awesome. But we were talking on the phone this morning. I said, you know what? I said, a big misconception is that all Democrats, which I'm a registered Democrat. Right. I don't even know when I registered Democrat. Right. But uh, that all Democrats are pro-choice. Mm-hmm. And it's not the case. Yeah. And all Democrats are pro, you know, gay marriage and blah, blah, this and right. blah, blah, that. 
And that's not true. Just like all Republicans, in my opinion, are not pro-life. Right. You know, yeah. it's just not not true. You're still a Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but it seems uh, at least nationally that the party's kind of hostile. I know, like in one of the last uh, conventions, there was supposed to be a pro-life Democrat to speak, and at the last minute, he was pulled. I think they even put a Republican pro-choice to replace him. Wow. I mean, obviously, you're on the local level, and and maybe no one really messes with you. How do you feel like? The Democratic Party could be transformed where it's more of a big tent, as they say. They say that most mm-hmm. African Americans are Democrat. Mm-hmm. For the most part, the ones I know that are pro-choice, and that's what I'm saying, that that is just a big misconception mm-hmm. out there. When I was out campaigning, uh, I know a, a gentleman told me that, you know, well, I can't vote for you because you're not pro-life. And there I am. I take him to the back of my car and I <laughs> yeah, pointed yeah. at There I have this big yellow yeah. Choose Life bumper sticker on my, I'm 100% pro-life. And so I think that is the general thought. If you're Democrat, you have to be pro-choice. I think, in my opinion, mm-hmm. they should do away with parties, period. I think oh, that's yeah. just another device sure. to separate the people. The founding fathers them. didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, exactly know? right. It's yeah. just another device. Just like some people say, well, I'm Baptist. Baptists won't right. associate with the Methodists because they don't do what the Catholics and all this and this and that. All that is nothing but division. And if you had even, you know, it was more so when I was campaigning, I thought, well, why does it have to be? Mm-hmm. Everything should be, to me, nonpartisan, yeah. you know. Do you think abortion should be illegal then? I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, the, you know, the opposition to that position would say, well, h- how can you say that? How can you say that abortion should be illegal? If you had one, you had that choice. Well, number one, I was misinformed. And uh, number two, the taking of a life that you didn't have the power to give, you mm-hmm. know, these somebody has to be a voice for the unborn. Uh, I read an article one time called Sing a Little Louder. Have you ever read that? Mm-hmm. It was a, from a pro-life. You should re- read that. It's awesome. But um, there was a pro-life um, activist. His name was Penny Lee. And he talked about uh, living during the time of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, that all the Christian people, they would be outside in the yard singing hymns and the train would come by every Sunday morning. Little did they know it was carrying Jews going to be slaughtered. But after a while, they realized it mm-hmm. and the people were crying out for them to help. He said, but instead of them helping, they would just sing a little louder. So yeah. try to drown out the sounds of. And that's what we do, I feel like, here in America mm-hmm. as far as abortion in some pro-life literature, you'll see them identify with the folks that were the resistance during the Nazi years mm-hmm. that were trying to save the Jews, you know, the underground, the abolitionist movement here in mm-hmm. America. Do you see them as inheriting that? Or do you see them as similar, that having that same fight? Yeah, I do. Okay. Because number one, you go back to the Holocaust. I mean, those people were innocent. They were, I mean, they did absolutely nothing. These unborn children, they're innocent. And it is the exact same fight because you have so many people coming up with all these different arguments. People say, well, when does, when is life viable? When is it a real life? Mm -hmm. You know, some people say life is not viable until conception. Some people say until the heartbeat. Some people say the first trimester, they, all these arguments. But in Jeremiah 1 and 5, Jesus tells Jeremiah, before you were even formed in the womb, I knew you. I, I mean, you are 
thought of in the mind of Christ before your parents even got together and how powerful that is. Mm -hmm. And I think that regardless of the circumstances of the conception, I think there's a purpose for every single life. You know, I grew up thinking that I was cursed or whatever because my mom and dad weren't married, but mm -hmm. actually my dad was, but not to my mom. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, you think, well, I'm an accident. Yeah. There's no accidents. Right. That old feeling we call giving up. Same old dark cloud always hanging around. If you'd like to reach out to Miss Bowman, you can email her at sweetiebowman at yahoo.com. And sweetie is spelled S W E E T I E. Or you can find her on Facebook via the name of her foundation, Plans for You Youth Organization. And the for you is the number four in the letter U. And if you'd like to learn more about the Door of Hope or need some help, you can visit their website, doorofhope.com. And there's the interview we conducted with their current director, Mac Wells, on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 165. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. God is about to do. Do you believe it? God is about to do. Keep on believing.